Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. I will start with a short quote from a letter Karl Marx wrote in 1871. The international was founded in order, in order to replace the socialist or semi-socialist sects by a real organization of the working class for struggle. The original statutes and the inaugural address show this at the first glance. On the other hand, the internationalists uh, could not have maintained themselves if the course of history had not already smashed up the sectarian system. The development of the system of the socialist sects and uh, that of the real workers' movement always stand in uh, inverse ratio to each other. So long as the sects are historically justified, the working class is not yet ripe for uh, an independent historic movement. As soon as it has attained this maturity, all sects are essentially reactionary. And nevertheless, what history has shown everywhere was repeated within the international. The antiquated makes an attempt to re-establish and maintain itself within the newly achieved form. In this letter, Marx referred to the first international and the internal struggle between socialists and anarchists that ultimately ended with the dissolution of that organization. And many times, starting with the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels uh, criticized those communist and socialist tendencies, schools and sects that, pre- uh, that preached socialism and their particular recipe for rebuilding society according to justice. And that was the infancy of the workers' movement. The working class had not yet developed its own independent organizations, and its aspirations and its needs were mainly expressed through the propaganda of uh, the utopian socialists of different shades. In that sense, the struggle to move forward from that embryonic stage can be considered one, and that stage has been overcome since, since long. It is true that with the fall of the Soviet Union and the ensuing ideological reaction, Many mass movements saw a revival of utopian ideas about how to overcome the evils of capitalism. That was particularly evident in the so-called anti-globalization movement in the early 2000s. But those ideas were generated not in the working class, but in the petty bourgeois sectors which tried to figure out, figure out a way to resist the crushing pressure of finance capital. But sectarianism reappeared, as Marx wrote, in a new shell many times along the history of the working class and the revolutionary movement. 
sectarismo ha reaparecido nuevas formas varias veces a lo largo de la historia del movimiento obrero revolucionario. It would be easy to list some of the features which characterize sectarian tendencies and organizations. Es fácil hacer una lista de las características de las organizaciones o tendencias sectarias. The one-sidedness, for instance. La visión sesgada de los acontecimientos. The tendency to accept only some forms of the class struggle. Tendencia a aceptar solo algunas formas de la lucha de clase. Uh, there are sects, for instance, who consider that only strikes are a real proletarian form of struggle, denying any other activity as opportunistic. Hay grupos, por ejemplo, que consideran solo la huelga de manera proletaria y niegan cualquier otro tipo de Or groups that dedicate themselves exclusively to propaganda, dissociating it from any activity in the movement. Otros se dedican única y exclusivamente a la propaganda, alejándose de cualquier actividad real. En... In 1935, Trotsky dealt with the question of sectarian tendencies inside those forces that were trying to build the Fourth International. And it was not the first, not the, not the last time that he had to write on this. Uh, here are some passages from this article. Every working class party, every faction, passes during its initial stages through a period of pure propaganda, i.e. the training of its cadres. The period of existence as a Marxist circle engrafts invariably habits of an abstract approach to the problems of the workers' movement. He who is unable to step in time over the confines of this circumscribed existence becomes transformed into a conservative sectarian. The sectarian looks upon life in society as a great school with himself as a teacher there. During a certain stage of development, rationalism is progressive. The, I'm cutting down the quote. The progressive stage of rationalism is repeated in every great emancipatory movement. But rationalism, or abstract propagandism, becomes a reactionary factor the moment it is directed against the dialectic. Sectarianism is hostile to dialectics, dialectics not in words, but in deeds, in action in the sense that it turns its back upon the actual development of the working class. Ten minutes. This is Trotsky in 1935. And uh, this approach he was talking about often presents itself in a negative form, that is, uh, the demonization of this or that form of struggle. Be it the parliamentary struggle, the economic struggle, and so on, with the promise that if the movement stays away from them, it will be free from the danger of opportunism and degeneration. And all these mistakes, and many others, show a clear trait of idealism and subjectivism. They try to build their own working class, their own workers' movement, instead of studying and intervening in the real class struggle. Uh, by taking reality as a starting point and not any principle invented in a closed room. However, uh, I would warn against a discussion that sets off from a mere list of sectarian traits or features. Um, 
embargo, voy a sin embargo, no voy a hacer Like any other political phenomenon, sectarianism is rooted in the class struggle. It is not enough to find the definition of it and to apply to a given tendency to see whether it fits or not into it. This approach, this approach is only a first step, but being uh, purely static, it cannot show the objective roots and development of that particular phenomenon. Uh, like some of the older comrades here, I have been a member of the CWI, the Committee for the Workers International, which was a Marxist organization that degenerated into a sect. And that was due both to objective and subjective reasons I will touch briefly later on. That was an example of sectarianism, uh, which came about as a part of a defeat of the working class internationally. The defeat of the workers' movement at the beginning of the 80s, of the last century. But history shows us other and different examples. In the founding years of the Communist International, Lenin and Trotsky had to wage a very serious and principled battle uh, against the sectarian tendency in the newly formed uh, communist parties. That was particularly true for the German and the Italian communist parties, but others as well, like the, the British. In that case, the sectarian tendency manifested themselves among sectors of the working class and specifically of its vanguard. That is, revolutionary workers and militants who had been repelled by the betrayal, betrayal of the Second International during uh, World War I. And galvanized by the Russian Revolution, reacted vehemently against the social democracy. They rallied to the Communist International which, by the way, explicitly appealed the ultra-left and semi-anarchist tendencies, like the French syndicalists, the Spanish CNT or the IWW in the US, they appealed to join ranks with the international, uh, Communist International. That was absolutely, uh, absolutely correct at that time, as the sectarian trades could be overcome with a combination of principled and democratic discussion and the living experience of the mass revolutionary movement that was developing. Lenin's masterpiece, Left-Wing Communism, and many documents and speeches from the Second and Third Congresses of the International reports the fruits of that battle, of that discussion. And big emphasis was put in explaining the need to, to sink roots in the trade unions to win the majority of the working class to the revolutionary program and perspective to make good use of all the different fields of activity in order to build the revolutionary party. And the question of the united front was at the core of these debates, as well as the question of the workers' government or workers' and peasants' government, according to the different countries. 20 minutes. The underlying idea can be synthesized this way that in order to reach the masses that still follow the reformist leaders of the social democracy and the trade unions, it is not enough just to appeal to them to leave their organizations and join the revolutionary party. It is necessary to address their leaders in order to reach their members. It is necessary to put before the reformist leader precise demands for united action, to reach the masses over the heads, if you like, of the reformist bureaucracy. This approach was rooted in the experience of the Russian Revolution itself between February and October 1917. At that time, the Bolsheviks, as a tiny minority in the Soviets, 
openly appealed to the reformist leader, defying them to take power or inviting them to take power. In the same way, in August 1917, they applied a united front tactic to fight Cornillo's uh, attempted coup. And that tactic was absolutely essential in order to prepare the October Revolution. And of course, the united front is not a panacea to be employed always and under any circumstance. As Trotsky remarked, it would have made uh, no sense, for instance, to appeal to the reformist leader to organize the seizure of power in October. As I said, as I said before, the ultra-left tendencies were strongly present in the Third International at uh, its inception, and the Bolshevik Party itself was not immune from this tendency in 1919. The idea uh, of a communist leap was present not only amongst the left communists, that is uh, Bukharin and others. In 1921, at the Third Congress of the Communist International, Trotsky explained, honestly explained, that in 1919 there was the hope that uh, capitalism could be toppled in Europe by a single assault. That the the revolution could storm and conquer uh, in a sweep the whole of the continent. But despite the great revolutionary elan with the revolutionary situation in Hungary, in Bavaria, in Italy, and so on, uh, the events gave Uh, proof that in order to win the revolution in Central and Western Europe, a deeper preparation was needed. And that the Communist International had to seriously undertake this task if it was to fulfill its uh, historical task and not to degenerate uh, degenerate into a sect. Uh, In a certain sense, we could say that those uh, sectarian tendencies were a healthy reaction which reflected the growing radicalization of the best vanguard of the working class. They could be corrected, and in many cases they actually were corrected, from the infantile disorder, and that was Lenin's and Trotsky's approach. And Lenin clearly stated that even too often, the ultra-left mistakes were a retribution for the opportunistic sins of the reformist bureaucracy. Therefore, in order to understand it, it's not just a question of finding a definition of sectarianism, good for all times and all circumstances, but we must rather understand the process. The, the working class is not a monolith, is not homogeneous. Different economic conditions, different experiences will give rise to different poli- political consciousness. There is also the pressure of other classes, like the lower strata of the petty bourgeoisie or semi-proletarian sections of the working class, which under certain objective circumstances can become very active and develop a confused anti-capitalist consciousness. This is certainly true in the present, present epoch when the crisis of the capitalist system destabilizes and uh, threatens their condition of existence. The so-called populism, which puzzles the progressive intellectuals, must be explained firstly by this objective basis. Uh, this movement, and I'm referring to those petty bourgeois movements who are more or less confusedly on the left, certainly have an influence on the working class. 30 minutes. Particularly when the class is not mobilized, and uh, they can create a fertile ground for impatience, or hope uh, in for easy miracles and ad- adventurist trends in minority sections of the working class. In the trade union movement, we also witness many times the emergence of ultra-left tendencies to split away from the mass 
uh, trade unions. These phenomena did arise from different material bases. Sections of the working class can find uh, themselves in a particularly con- particular condition that pushes them to act independently from, from, from the general movement. In most cases, this is a combination of objective and subjective factors. The trade union bureaucracy often act as a block for the organization of a, a given layer of the working class, particularly amongst the most oppressed and the most exploited sections. Uh, agricultural laborers, for instance, very often immigrants, living in a very, a very precarious existence, are seen with uh, suspicion, are kept segregated by the reformist bureaucracy. And in many countries, they give a point of support for independent trade unions. In Spain, the SOC, the Sindicato Obreros del Campo, which later evolved in the SAT, is a good example of these militant and fighting trade unions. Uh, uh, these fighting trade unions, which can actually become majority unions in a given section, in a given industry or region, while being a minority in relation to the labor movement in general. Historically, the industrial workers of the world, the, the wobblies in the U.S., are a good example of this. This has always been connected to the, the subjective action of political cadres from left-wing and sectarian organizations. In some industries and trades in different countries, we see similar developments. In the logistic uh, delivery industry, for instance, we see many examples of this sort of organizations. The fast growth of these industries through the e-commerce in recent years gave a certain bargaining power to the workforce, while the official trade unions quite, quite often are incapable of reaching these workers and to confront giant companies like Amazon, United Parcel Service, and so on, when they are not directly in the pocket of the management, which is often the case. Uh, in this regard, the thesis and documents of the first congresses of the Communist International are compulsory reading for all of us. The Communist International clearly stated that an active and organized work inside the mass reformist trade unions was a duty for every communist party, and no exceptions were allowed. And uh, it warned against the splits that uh, separate the most advanced layer from the mass of the class, thus uh, facilitating their isolation and repression both from the bureaucracy, the bosses, and the state. At the same time, the Communist International stated that this formula was not to be turned into a dogma or a fetish. In those cases where the bureaucracy actively and effectively blocked the organization of the section of the workers, the setup of independent trade unions was considered as an option, provided that it was understood by the workers and that a united front tactic was consistently employed and applied towards the majority trade unions. History shows that these militant and minority unions never develop beyond a certain point. And when they reach that limit, they lose their worker base and turn into ossified sects or disintegrate. And the only answer lies in the theoretical and political approach to this phenomenon. uh, uh, Quite often, these uh, small radical unions are influenced uh, by another distortion, that is a tendency to confuse economic and political struggle. And just like they hope to to bypass the obstacle of the reformist bureaucracy by setting up a separate union, 40 minutes. 
They hope to solve the question of the political leadership of the proletariat by using these unions as a substitute for a political party. This conception has a clear anarchist or anarcho-syndicalist origin, but at times it has been adopted by cadres of Marxist or semi-Marxist background. So it is absolutely essential for us to discuss the relationship between the economical and political struggle, both in general and at every concrete turn of the events, and as well as the relationship between the different layers of the working class and their mutual connections. Only through this constant uh, theoretical training, we can effectively intervene in this field, build a, a fruitful relation with these struggles, and fight to avoid that good working class fighters are lost for the cause when the limitations and the mistakes of uh, this strategy become apparent. Uh, at the height of the mass movement, the consciousness tend to be more homogeneous, when the formerly backward stratas raise up and catch and even sometimes overlap the vanguard, and the pr and the, the presence of a working-class revolutionary party can be the decisive element to bring this consciousness to the necessary level in order to face, to face the, the historical task of the conquest of power. But this is exception, because under capitalism, the normal condition is of much more dispersion, difference, and even conflicting tendencies inside the masses. And it would be yet another sectarian mistake to believe that a vanguard organization can change this through mere propaganda or even through action. The revolutionary party or tendency in these epochs has the task of carefully analyze at every juncture, under any given circumstances, the state of the movement yeah. to spot those progressive tendencies that manifest themselves amongst the masses and try to connect to them in order to advance advance its cause. Sectarian or ultra-left groups did in fact play a role also in mass movements, as witnessed by the example of the 60s and 70s in several countries. Italy was one clear case, but not the only one. We could also refer to revolutionary events like the Cordovazo in Argentina in 1969 and many, many others. And uh, in a very general way, we could say that most of the ultra-left tendencies in those years were originated amongst the students. And uh, the, the radicalization of the youth from the, the second half of the 60s was certainly an anticipation of the process going on deep beneath the surface in society, inside the working class. It was... Yeah, it was like the radicalization of the Russian youth uh, before 1905 revolution. And that was also fueled by international in events. And in this sense, it was also distorted by the peculiar form that the colonial revolution took in the, in the post-war period. Yeah. The, the Chinese revolution, and in particular uh, the, the Cuban revolution, the guerrilla liberation war in Vietnam were seen by the revolutionary students as a new uh, perspective uh, for the revolution. And uh, of course, the perspective of a peasant guerrilla could not appeal to the working class in Europe. And it led to tragic experiences under the form of a, a revival of terrorism at a later stage. But before that, that generation of students did actually play a role uh, in the big movements, not only in the schools and university, uh, universities, but in the working class too. There were also some cadres who had broken with the communist and socialist parties earlier, who played a leading part in those movements between 1968 and 69 in, in Italy.
and for a short while, uh, paradoxically, their sectarianism, their ultra-leftism gave them an advantage on the trade union bureaucracy. 15 minutes. Uh, they maintained a lot of awfully wrong ideas and uh, a wild spontaneism above all, but this found an audience in the big industrial plant, plants. The most exploited layers of the working class, uh, most of them of recent immigration from southern Italy, were suffering from low wages, discrimination inside and outside the workplaces, and uh, savage exploitation on the assembly belt during the post-war boom. And uh, they were largely neglected by the trade union bureaucracy and gave a good response to the students coming at the factory gates with the revolutionary propaganda. And so they discussed jointly with the students their conditions, their demands, and, and what to do. And actually, there was a stage in 1968 when the ultra-left groups were in a position to command an important following and to call effective strikes in some of the biggest industrial plants in northern Italy. And the tragedy was that they didn't, did not have the theoretical arsenal to understand what they were in effect doing. The unbroken thread, that is, the, the, the unbroken thread of Marxist theory was not present. And it had been cut previously, in particular by, by the role of Stalinism. Stalinism. Had they had a real Marxist grounding, uh, history could have taken a, a different path. Because the ultra-left sects were uh, in effect able to organize several thousands of young workers and students maybe 30,000 as, uh, as an overall figure at their peak. And the biggest groups had uh, five to 8,000 each, which was a small force compared to 1.5 million or more in the Communist Party, but still could have played a different role. And with an adequate, adequate tactic uh, towards the trade unions, the factory councils and the Communist Party, they could have laid the basis for the building of a small revolutionary party just like the Orden and Wavo group in Turin in 1919-1920, was able to win the best workers' vanguard in the factory councils, which later gave an important base in the working class to the newly formed uh, Italian Communist Party in 1921. Unfortunately, the ultra-left in the late 60s did, did not possess that sort of theoretical armory. I'm not hearing the translation anymore. They proclaimed the, the death of the trade unions, they boycotted the newly formed factory councils. They glorified uh, the purely economic demands on wages as inherently revolutionary and so on and so on. And so they facilitated the comeback of the trade union bureaucracy in the, in the following stage. Yeah. In, a, in, a, in more recent years, there were other examples of the sectarian organizations acting as a sort of barometer of bigger events, events to come. Uh, I have uh, in mind the example of the Argentinazo of uh, 2001, the insurrection that overthrew five presidents in a couple of weeks after the financial collapse of the country. That, that, that was a key link in the chain of revolutionary events, uh, which in that decade spanned from Venezuela to Bolivia, Ecuador, and uh, in one way or another touched most of the Latin American continent. A few months before that explosion, uh, the left, which in Argentina, for historical reasons, has always been composed by important sects, mainly with Trotskyist allegiance, had a, a, an expected result in the polls with an overall uh, figure of 10% or so of the votes. 
But as I said, it was mainly a symptom of a deeper process which expressed immediately after in a, in a full-scale insurrection and a, and a revolutionary situation. It is important to notice that despite this relatively important role, the sects in effect denied the perspective of a revolutionary, of a, of, of a revolution and of workers' power. 60 minutes. They, they, they relied on, to, on electoral tactics or cultivated their own points of support in very specific sections of the masses, like the unemployed of the Piqueteros movement for the Partido Obrero or some of the occupied factories for the PTS, which were two of the main groups. Of course, it is absolutely correct to intervene energetically amongst those sections of the working class that display uh, fighting ability. Our Brazilian section, for instance, has a, a, a proud record, a proud history of supporting and leading the struggle in occupied factories run by the workers themselves. The mistake of the sects was in giving an absolute value to a specific movement, to figure it as the working class movement and the only one. The, the mistake uh, to mistake the part for the whole, if you like, and that leads inevitably to mistakes of both ultra left or, or opportunistic nature. And that revolutionary situation gave rise to a discussion about the question of workers' power. And Alan Wood's article uh, that was included amongst the readings for this session deals precisely with that discussion. And while some groups like the PTS tended to minimize the scope of the movement, uh, referred to it uh, just as revolutionary days and not revolutionary situation, others like the Partido Obrero spoke of a revolutionary situation but did not draw the necessary strategy from that and uh, evaded the decisive point using the confused uh, slogan of the Constituent, uh, Constituent Assembly. And in the following years, uh, electoral policies and tactics became more and more dominant, leading to a serious problem of uh, adaptation to the bourgeois state and of uh, watering down of the program and subsequently to splits and crises in these groupings. Uh, the same contradiction between an advanced layer and the mass of the working class I referred to in relation to the early years of the Communist International uh, can also emerge in uh, an inverse form, uh, if you like, uh, like in a mirror in different uh, circumstances. When a mass movement develops, it generates thousands or tens of thousands of new activists and new cadres. That is, people who overnightly embrace uh, the active participation in, in the movement, joining its organization, uh, people who are leaders of the masses. But when the movement begins to ebb, this layer will not necessarily be able to understand the change immediately and to act accordingly. The process is well explained in Trotsky's analysis of the 1905 revolution and is also dealt in details in Alan Wood's history of the Bolshevik party. In 1906-1907, the movement in Russia was retreat retreating after the bloody suppression of the Moscow uprising. But while the masses were slowly retreating, a layer of the vanguard had drawn revolutionary conclusions from, from the experience of 1905 and joined the ranks of the Russian Social Democratic Workers' Party, both uh, the Menshevik and the Bolshevik wing. 
And this explains the, the, the fact that during the, the retreat, the Russian Social Democratic Labour Party reached its peak membership as registered at the Congresses of 1906 and 1907. This contradiction, too, gave rise to sectarian tendencies in, inside the Bolshevik factions, such as the boycott of the elections and a semi-terrorist deviation amongst a layer of the Bolshevik activists. Some of the leaders of these factions, like Bogdanov, always had some sectarian trade and theoretical differences with Lenin. Uh, but under the different uh, conditions of 1904-1905, these were not a real danger. But in the new situation, Lenin understood that the sectarian mistakes combining with the negative turn of the objective situation could be a mortal danger for the Bolshevik tendency. And uh, condemning the Bolshevik could condemn the Bolshevik to a sectarian degeneration, mm-hmm. and that and that is why, uh, while previously Lenin tolerated them, although without making the slightest uh, theoretical concession, now he went for for a head-on clash. Seventy minutes. Yeah. And that included uh, both a political battle, for instance, on the question of participation in the elections and the uh, legal activity in general, and also a theoretical backlash against the philosophical idealist uh, tendencies which lied at the bottom of this uh, ultra-left faction. We can say that in epochs of uh, retreat and defeat, it is almost inevitable that part or even the majority of the revolutionary movement degenerate in sectarian forms. as it is just not possible to, to reach the masses. The fate of the Fourth International was set by the defeats of the late 30s and the 40s, which gave uh, the, the reformists and the Stalinists uh, an iron grip on the labor movement on a world scale and segregating the marches to, to the sidelines for a whole historical period. Well, When similar developments come about, there is room for all sorts of mistakes, notwithstanding the amount of Marxist phraseology and quotes which are written into political resolutions or leading articles on the party press. A key text that should be carefully studied by all comrades is is, uh, the program of the International, written by Ted Grant in 1970. And that document carefully traces the theoretical roots of the degeneration of the Fourth International and its capitulation to the adverse historical forces. Uh, I'm not going further on that, as I think that the session on the history of the IMT will deal uh, with it in depth. On a much smaller scale, the sectarian degeneration of the CWI in the mid and late 80s had some similar traits. The general trend after the 70s was one of retreat of the working class internationally. And in Britain, the militant had attracted thousands of dedicated fighters who had drawn conclusions from the 70s, particularly about the the limits and betrayers of reformism and also of left reformism. Losing the translator again. But uh, at the turn of the decade, the, the workers' movement began to suffer a series of important defeats, like the miners in Britain, or the fiat workers in Italy in 1980, and uh, the defeat of the left coalition government in France, the defeat of the air traffic controllers strike in the US in 1981, and so on. There were many of these defeats, both on the economical and political front. And uh, that turned clashed with the previous experience, and so the contradiction expressed in the CWI and the militant 
the idea that you could advance in the same way under any objective cir circumstance by applying organizational pressure on the organization. Now, retrospectively, we characterized that epoch as one of mild reaction. But even in epochs of retreat, the processes are not homogeneous. There will be cross-currents. In the mid-late 80s, the CWI was able to intervene and even to lead mass movements like the anti-poll tax movement in Great Britain or the students' uh, movement in Spain in 1986-87. And while these were stunning successes, there was also a great danger uh, entailed, which only later became apparent. Because it is all too easy in such circumstances to, make, to mistake uh, one particular trend, which is moving forward, for the general and prevailing trend, which at the time was moving backwards, a, a mild reaction, as I said. For peculiar reasons, a small organization can find itself at the head of, the, of a mass movement, and of course it is duty-bound to fulfill its role as best as it can. But this does not mean that that position is won permanently, nor it means that that particular movement sets the main trend in society. Missing this point was one of the causes that contributed to the sectarian evolution of the CWI and had effects on a section of our Spanish cadres uh, later on. 80 minutes. There were several other sides to that process I can't deal properly here, but one is worth quoting. Participation in uh, mass organizations in itself is not a guarantee against uh, sectarianism. The militant was a part of the Labour Party, but this did not prevent its uh, sectarian involution. In fact, uh, the, the fact that it commanded the majority in the Labour Party Young Socialists uh, at, at a certain point contributed to the bureaucratic tendencies which were linked to that method of uh, administrative pressure I refer to. There was a certain layer of so-called cadres who had emerged mainly not, not from the participation in the movement and in the building of the, on the ground, nor for their political and theoretical contribution, but rather by advancing along internal lines in the organization. And that increased the tendency to uh, an authoritarian method of leading, which proved to be a fatal weakness when a few, year, a few years later the organization was not prepared to have a real debate facing the turn in the, in the world situation in 1989 and 1991. And this sort of sectarianism had nothing progressive, nothing infantile in it. It was a, rather a, an ossification and all the attempts to fight it through a serious internal debate proved futile as opposition led by Ted Grant, Alan Woods and others was simply expelled in a few months. The parallel uh, is uh, with the splits that Ted Grant had to cope with in the late 30s or in 1949 or in 1965 with the so-called Fourth uh, International. The, despite Ted's uh, persistent attempt to discuss and to overcome the differences with the principal debate, that was not possible. And in all those instances, the only way the Marxist tendency could survive and re-establish itself was through a split. But in all these historical examples, Ted's method, which we are to defend, was to debate, to debate and to defend uh, the principles Amongst which the question of internal democracy was not the less, the, the less important. Uh, that is the Leninist method. And it is important to notice that in 1906, Lenin was prepared to remain in a minority amongst the Bolsheviks 
accepting the boycott of, of the elections, although he was against it. Even more noticeable, uh, the fact that Lenin and Trotsky, on, on the eve, just before the third Congress of the Communist International in 1921, contemplated the hypothesis to be in a minority, given the strength of the ultra-left tendencies of the German and Italian Communist parties in particular. They were firmly convinced that discussion, even an internal fight, combined with experience, would show the correctness of their stand and overcome the sectarian mistakes. And I'm quoting these episodes for an important reason, because the, the IMT today is a, a homogeneous political organization, and this was won through discussion and theoretical training. But we have entered an epoch of catastrophic events, an epoch of unprecedented crisis of capitalism, of intense class struggle, of revolution and counter-revolution. And uh, these events will test us too. We will have to face new problems, changes, sharp turns, and this will inevitably create differences and even conflicts, political conflicts. And not to think so would amount to embrace the wildest form of idealism and detachment from reality. As, as materialists, we base our actions on the objective situation, as we can understand it. We know that our program, our strategy do not come just from our desire. But, but this has nothing in common with a fatalistic optimism or a, a passive contemplation of a, an objective development. 19 minutes. Yes. A few more minutes, Eric, and I sum up. The, the October Revolution was the result of the objective reality of the class struggle in Russia and on a world scale. But that became a reality only through the will, the subjective action of the Bolshevik Party and its leadership. And in the same way, the building of a new revolutionary international is an objective necessity But it is a subjective act which depends from the collective action of men and women who choose this endeavor. I have not dealt with the conditions of the sectarian galaxy, galaxy these days because the crisis is complete. It is not by chance. It is part of the preparation of the world-shaking events that are in the making. And these groups are part of the past. And the surest symptom of their crisis is that in many countries they try to join forces to build united fronts between amongst them and so on. Our uh, general relationship with uh, that world is the, the same we had in 1938 or 1965. Go your way till the end, gentlemen, and we will ignore you and face to the working class. We face the youth the, and the best representative of those millions of those billions of people who are facing the decay and rottenness of capitalism and will fight to find a way out. The, there is a passage in the program of the International I mentioned by Ted Grant, which I think illustrates the relationship between those two elements, the subjective and the objective, in an unsurpassed way. This is my last point, Comrade Chair. And I quote, the, The pressure of capitalism, reformism, and Stalinism in a period of capitalist upswing in the West, the temporary consolidation of Stalinism in the East, the perversions of the colonial revolution as explained in the preceding material of Stalinism, were the causes of the degeneration of all the sects claiming to be the fourth international. But an explanation is not an excuse, and necessity has two sides. In preceding history, the degeneration of the second and the third internationals 
due to objective as well as subjective factors, did not justify the leaders who had abandoned Marxism. It did not justify either reformism or Stalinism. Similarly, there is no justification for the crimes of sectarianism and opportunism which had been committed by the leaders of the so-called Fourth International for more than an entire generation. And, uh, Congress Ted Grant was never afraid of calling things by their right name. Already in the 40s, he referred to the sections of the Fourth International as small sects, and at that time, that included the RCP, of which himself, he himself was the main political leader and theoretician. It was a sharp way to warn of the danger that even promising revolutionary organizations can fall into the blind alley of sectarianism and being lost for their historical task. Today, this gigantic task lies before us. The historical trend is once again moving forward, and we must therefore assume full responsibility for that. And I'm sure that this discussion and this school as a whole will be an important step. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.